Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. Final session on prayer this morning. The very first session, we looked at the personal life of prayer that we need to have before God. And the power and effectiveness of your service to people will be proportional to the time that you spend in intimate communion with God the Father. The whole principle of waiting on the Lord and of taking that time daily to personally seek the Lord in prayer and in waiting, waiting upon Him as well as hearing God's voice and hearing Him speak the strategy to us for the given day. That was the first section we looked at. Second section we looked at was the value of speaking in tongues. I encourage you to use the gift of tongues that God has given you. And if some of you have not received the, the gift of um, tongues and, and the, uh, the however ter- whatever terms you want to say, the fullness of the baptism of the Spirit or whatever, we will be happy to pray for you. I believe, you know, some people say, well, does everybody have to speak in tongues? I say, no, you don't have to, but I believe everyone can. I believe that the the way has been made available by the Holy Spirit and with the proper teaching and with the proper um, understanding and knowledge, which is is what faith is based on. I think everyone can come into this this beautiful anointing and uh, endowment of power that God wants us to have to be effective in His service. And I was spending some time this morning getting rid of the old Schroeder water so that you'd have something from Jesus this morning. And then the third area we talked about was praying with Paul. Praying the prayers that Paul has given us. And I commend those to you, to make those a part of your prayer repertoire. Then this morning, I want to look briefly at the area of spiritual warfare. I do five or six sessions on this area of spiritual warfare and, and um, battling against the powers of darkness. But, and, and, and just I'm aware that as we've prayed and stuff, that you're aware of the enemy that we're fighting. So I'm just going to just briefly talk about a couple of scriptures here this morning and not do a, an in-depth study of it. We need to realize as we go on campus that we are fighting a tremendous stronghold of satanic power. The Bible says that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against spiritual powers of wickedness, of which Satan is the king, and under him are lesser powers, what the Bible calls principalities, and then under them are are other lesser powers, all the way down to the demons, who are simply kind of the little footmen for the kingdom of darkness whose job is to harass and and possess and and express their evil through people who will let um, that sort of thing into their lives. And so actually when we're dealing with demonic power, and especially demons, all we're dealing with really are are just the little little imps of the kingdom of Satan. And the the larger powers are these massive powers in the sky. It's like an unseen mafia that's behind the scenes. It's been working in history. Satan has a plan in history to uh, bring about a one-world government and to bring about total rebellion against God and try to push God totally out of the realm of the affairs of men. So that's Satan's purpose. And behind every natural event is supernatural power. The whole thing of what happened in the 60s with the breaking forth of the counterculture and the, the Beatles and all of that was not a natural occurrence. But that was something I believe that Satan had been, had been sowing for at least 100 years. 
See, Satan works strategically. Satan is not dumb. Satan is a very cunning and a very wise and a crafty enemy. And he doesn't spend his time, you know, harassing us. And when we rebuke the enemy, we come against Satan and the powers of darkness. But we need to realize that Satan doesn't even know who most of us are because we're not that important. But what he's doing is manipulating the affairs of nations. And he is, he's masterminding this whole strategy of rebellion against God. And that's what we're fighting against. And the universities are key in this thing because the universities are the fulcrum of where our society is going. And so we're going to be encountering tremendous strongholds against the enemy. Therefore, we need to fight the right battle. And the, the battle, of course, is fought in prayer through prayer and fasting and coming against all of the strongholds that are there spiritually. And, and as is the case in natural warfare, there's a price to be paid to make beachheads and to make offenses, offensives into the enemy's territory so that there's a real price to be, prayed, a price to be paid and prayed as we want to make penetrations against the powers of darkness. And uh, we just need to be aware of that. And we need to be willing to ourselves pay the price in prayer as well as teaching others and, 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 and encouraging and praying for others that will join with us and unitedly coming against the powers of darkness. I don't think, personally, that any one of our prayers can bind the large principalities and powers that are over nations, that are over states, and all of that. I don't think I have enough prayer power. That's why it takes the united prayers of God's people. That's why on Thursday night... When we, we, when we began praying and when there was a sense in the spirit that we were working together, and, that's, and, and when that happens, there is effective things happening in the heavenly places. And there's, there's things that begin to, to shake in the spiritual world. And, and as we persist together and as we're able to uh, manifest united prayer, we're going to see you know, nations opened up. We're going to see the... Uh, work in Boston really flourish because the, the powers of darkness are being pushed back. Remember that spiritual warfare is like a wrestling match. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that are in the heavenly places. And it's a wrestling match. And it's, it's not the kind of thing where you just say, well, Satan, we bind you and that's it. But it's, it's a wrestling match. And, and in a very real way, we enter into that wrestling match. And this also has to do with the with the concept of travail that is given to us in the scripture of how a woman goes into tremendous travail and pain and agony for a period of time until finally something, something is birthed in the spirit and something new is able to happen. That's the way spiritual warfare is. And it's something that really the Holy Spirit needs to lead us into. We need to ask God to, to, to make us effective in fighting against the spiritual powers that are in the earth, and, this, and, and specifically the spiritual powers that are over our campus. And uh, we need to, as it says in Matthew 12, 29, we need to bind the strong man before we can go in and plunder his goods. We need to, so we need to see inhibit and, and um, uh, more, uh, what's the word I want, um, paralyze. The powers of darkness, the strong man that's over your campus. I, I, in my mind, I, I, I like to make these pictures because it helps me to pray. I just imagine these big, uh, oh, I kind of like either hitmen or, or, or just strong giants in the sky. And it's like they're guarding the campus. And any, 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 anything that comes near the campus that's, that threatens their kingdom, you know, they're, they're there fighting it. And they're opposing it and they're pushing it back. But as we begin to pray and fast... Then God comes and God ties up 
See, his weapons are powerful. It says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of God are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And it's not in our natural selves, not in our flesh that they're powerful, but it's by God as we tap his resources. God's big enough to bind those huge powers in the sky. So I imagine myself, I imagine God coming and tying up one of those big giants. And then he ties his legs and then he puts a, a gag over his mouth so he can't give orders anymore. And then God puts a blinder over his eyes and he can't see. And he's up there going, just angry, you know, because the prayers of the saints are hindering his activity. And, and that's when I pray, I think in those terms that the, the strong men over our campus are being bound. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 17, we have the story of, of Elisha. And Elisha, this is uh, the story I alluded to when the king of Syria was aware that the uh, Israelites were always finding out beforehand where he was going to attack. And so he was talking to his staff and saying, all right, which one of you is the traitor? Which one of you has been leaking information to Israel? And they told him, hey, none of us have, but there's a prophet. And every time you say something in your bedroom, he hears it and he tells the king of Israel. And that's why we're being thwarted all these times. So the king sends this army after Elisha. And the, uh, the servant wakes up in the morning. He gets up and he looks around and there's the chariots of Syria. He goes, oh, no. He goes and wakes Elisha up. And he, he wakes up and says, hey, man, we're in trouble. There's an army out there and they're after us. And, and, and uh, uh, Elisha gets up and looks around. And he says to his servant, he says, he says, don't worry. Those who are for us are more than those who are against us. You can just see the look of disbelief on this servant. He looks at Elisha and me, too. And then he starts counting the number of chariots out there all around him. And he goes, oh, man, he, you know, just didn't understand. Elisha, you've lost your mind. Elisha kind of sensed what was going on in his head. So he said, Lord, open his eyes that he might see the other realm, the spiritual realm. And God opened his eyes, and he saw the chariots of God and the, the chariots of, of, of Elisha right there. And then he gave out this victory cry and said, Hallelujah, those that are for us are more than those that are against us. And you see, in spiritual warfare, we need to have revelation of what is going on in the heavenly places. And that only comes by the Spirit of God. We don't know what the enemy's up to. We can't see it see, with our natural eyes. We don't see these kinds of things. But the Spirit of God will make us aware of what is happening. And when the enemy is moving offensively in a certain way, God will tune us in to pray, and he will give us the eyes to see so that the, the plans of the enemies can be thwarted. The Lord gave me a vision one time of what, what goes on in spiritual warfare. And I saw... Um, I saw a person in, in this oh, picture, dream, whatever that I had. I saw a person, and to this person was given a beautiful, shiny, silver sword that just gleamed with, with light. And the person, this person, who I turned, turned out later in the dream to be myself, was, I was given this sword. And, and in the heavenly places, there were all of these cords that were going down to the earth. They were cords of control, just similar like a puppet you know, like puppet strings. And, and, and the, the Satan and the powers of darkness were manipulating the affairs that were going on down on the earth. So when the, one of the demons or powers would pull a cord, there would be a corresponding action down on earth. And these cords ran all over the earth and were manipulating the affairs of, of men and the affairs of the earth. And, and so the Lord told me, he says, go forth and conquer. And so I took the sword and, and I saw one of these strings that was manipulating uh, a situation down on the earth. So I took the sword and I went, and it sliced it. 
And what happened is the cord fell away, and the people that were down under there, there was light that shone on them, and they were set free. And that's like the, the light kind of shined. Like God turned a flashlight on them, and they began to see what was really going on. And they were able to begin responding to the things of God. And not only were these just these little strings, but there was massive ropes, like the kind of ropes you used to see in gym and on ships. There was big ropes, and then some of them were huge, and there was huge trunks of trees. They looked like huge, massive trees that were in control of nations. And so I started going and hacking on one of those, and I got real tired, and I realized that I, couldn't, I wasn't going to be able to penetrate this thing alone. So God would call other soldiers, and they, we'd all be hacking away with our swords, you know. And finally, as we kept hacking away, praying and persevering in prayer, one day we'd come and we'd sweat, you know, have the last swap of the sword and the thing would break away and a whole nation would be opened up for the gospel or something would happen to the glory of God. And so that's, that, that picture has helped me to understand why we need to persevere in prayer and why it is that we pray and we intercede, we fast and believe God for a revival. And it just seems like we're not getting anywhere. Seems like, oh Lord, it's all wasted. You're not, you're not answering the prayer like we thought you should. Well, it's, we need to realize, see, we're still hacking away at the powers of darkness, and there's still pressure there. And the day will come, like, like Jim said last night, the only way we're defeated is if we give up. That's the only way we'll get defeated. But if we are faithful and we, we maintain our prayer and our faith before God, we're going to see the breakthrough. And then finally, things are going to open up and change. So I want to encourage you to... To in, in, in your work on your campuses, where, wherever the, the powers of darkness are everywhere in the earth, and wherever your, your mission field is, don't forget to pray against the powers of darkness. Turn with me to Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51, verses 20 through 23. This is what Jeremiah had a unique calling. He was a prophet to the nations. And he's a man through whom God was going to bring some amazing changes into the earth. And, and Jeremiah was a man uh, called to, to uh, some incredible kinds of prayer. And listen to what God says through, um, through Jeremiah and through his prayers. In verse 20, God says, You are my war club, and my weapon of war, and with you I will shatter nations. And with you, I will destroy kingdoms. Remember, at the beginning of Jeremiah's calling, back in Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, through you, I will pluck up nations and I will plant others. And see, that was through the prayer ministry of Jeremiah. And with you, I will shatter the horse and, and his rider. I think that maybe refers to independence. And with you, I will shatter the chariot and its rider. And with you, I will shatter man and woman. And with you I will shatter old men and youth. There's the generation gap. And with you I will shatter the young man and the virgin. And with you I will shatter the, the shepherd and his flock. And with you I will shatter the farmer and his team. And with you I will shatter governors and prefects, which are leaders of nations. And see, God is saying that through your prayers, I'm going to affect great changes in human history. And that's what when we need to be sensitive to and we need to do as Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 22, we need to be willing to stand in the gap. That's an awesome chapter, Ezekiel 22, because God says that I looked for a man among Israel who would stand in the gap and would pray. And God said he looked and he found no one, no one to pray. Therefore, God poured out his indignation and his wrath upon, upon the situation. 
And, and God calls us to stand in the gap, really to stand in the gap in two different ways. One, we stand in the gap between Satan and the people whom he has in bondage. We begin to take a stand and say, Satan, you're not going to bind these people any longer. You're not going to enforce your bondage on these people. And then the second gap that we stand between is we stand between God and his judgment and we plead his mercy for the people that are eminently going to reap what they have sown. And so we stand in the gap pleading for God to be merciful. And as we plead for God's mercy, then God is able to show mercy and he's able to give people another chance because the Bible says that God is slow to anger and he's quick to show loving kindness and mercy. We never, You guys, we never need to underestimate the power of God's mercy. And when there's a man or a woman there to plead the mercy of God, God can creatively extend pardon. He can creatively forestall judgment because when we pray for his mercy, that just opens up new avenues for God to work in situations that to us would seem hopeless. In Isaiah 59 and verse 16, the Bible says that God was astonished that there was no one to intercede. God was astonished that there was no one to intercede. And it's like, it's like uh, God the Father sitting up there on his throne and, and he's scratching his head going, I just can't believe it. There's no one praying down there because I've told them that all things are possible with prayer. I've told them that if they will ask in my name, I will do anything. And, and I just can't believe none of them are doing that. It's like God was astonished that no one was laying hold of the power of prayer. And, and, and he was, God was not only displeased, but he was astonished that no one was taking up their place in prayer so that it would allow God to move in new and creative ways in the situation. So we, we need to be careful. We don't underestimate the power of prayer. Because it really does give God new alternatives. When we pray for God's mercy and his blessing on situations, it opens up whole new avenues that God can work in, in human history and in, and in situations. And then you might want to look at Daniel chapter 10, one of the most revealing passages in the scripture of Daniel's 20-day, 21-day fast in his, his battle against the powers of darkness and how from the first day when he began to pray, and this was, see, this was for the restoration of Jerusalem, their return from captivity. It was something that God said would happen in 70 years, and yet Daniel prayed it through, and he prayed it into existence. And he was praying and fasting for 21 days, and finally on the 21st day, the angel broke through and told him and said, man, I, I, I was released 21 days ago. But I had trouble with the prince of Persia. I, I ran into trouble in the heavenly places. And I was, I was in this spiritual conflict. But because you persevered and you didn't give up, God's finally sent Michael and we cleared out the way. And now I'm here to tell you that the answer has been secured by your prayers. And see, that changed the whole destiny of Israel. They were released from captivity. And the next step in God's purpose was able to come forth. And it's a tremendous understanding of the, the kind of effect that we can have in prayer. Craig, did you have a comment? Uh, the Isaiah reference was Isaiah 59, 16. So I'd, I'd encourage you just to meditate on these, on these um, scriptures on spiritual warfare. That's all we have really time to say this morning about that. But that is a key area. If you're pioneering a campus ministry, you need to give special attention to prayer and fasting against the principalities and the powers of darkness. The fifth area I want to look at is the area of corporate prayer. I'm reading a quote here from that Jim Bradford wrote in the Campus Leaders Notebook on page 77. He says, 
The key to building prayer into the life of a corporate body is to foster the attitude that prayer is a ministry just as much as evangelism, discipleship, or worship. A zeal for prayer will develop as the leader is excited about it and as prayers begin to be answered. A sense of mission in prayer will also develop as opportunities for the community to undertake specific prayer projects together are made available, such as praying for the nations of the world, evangelistic events, and so forth. And I, and I mentioned this just a bit yesterday. Usually when we, you know, in, in a typical church service, when we have prayer time, the needs that we usually focus on are, are the needs of the people there. Usually we pray for someone who's sick or a marriage that is falling apart or the needs of people that the church folks are in contact with. And it's totally valid that we pray for those things. I'm not belittling that. But what we neglect to do is we don't pray for the big things like the opening up of nations. And it's like, remember the, the uh, vision of the post office in heaven? See, we ask for the little brown paper things when Jesus wants to give us the great elaborate answers to prayer. And it's because our vision is, is low in prayer. Instead of setting our sights high and seeing the potential of what we have to ask in prayer as a church, we, we've allowed our vision just to kind of be, be focused on us in our immediate world. And we've left the rest of the world uh, kind of to its own devices. And I, I believe God wants to lift our vision in prayer. And I, and I think the, this ministry of corporate prayer is an area that has been greatly neglected in the church. And I'm challenged in my own life in ministry that, that, we, that we need to build a corporate prayer life together. Because when we pray together, we can paralyze the powers of darkness. And I think that when we pray individually, it's like us getting our rifles out and shooting against the enemy. But when the church comes together and when we pray in unity, it's like getting out the artillery in the, I, the ICBMs, the intercontinental ballistic missiles. And when we start praying together, we're going to launch prayers that are going to destroy the gates of darkness. Hallelujah. See, we don't see much of that happening. I rarely hear of prayer for nations like in our church. I hardly ever hear prayers like that. It's always local things that are going on. And again, there's nothing wrong with the local things. There's a place for that. But we also need to have our sights set on the world. Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20. A couple of beautiful truths that Jesus gives us here about prayer. Jesus said, <clears throat> Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. The Greek word, therefore, um, that have um, that are gathered together in my name has the has the implication of being led there by the Spirit, having been led there by the Spirit. And I think there's a there's a real place of the Holy Spirit drawing us together with people, other people in prayer. And the two or three people gathered in the name of Jesus is the smallest cell of the body isn't it? Two or three people, it constitutes the smallest cell of the body of Christ, just as it would our physical bodies. And it's in, it's in that place where we can be in agreement together that God is able to, to, to um, really release tremendous power in prayer. And the area of agreement, in the Greek, it's the word from which we get symphony from. It is a, kind of a um, transliteration of it would be the Greek word symphonize. And so when we come together and agree 
it's it's not just like saying, all right, you guys agree that I get a Cadillac today. All right, well, I'll, I'll agree with you, man. So it's not that kind of agreement, but it's a spiritual harmonizing with the will of God. See, there's got to be the confirmation that it, this is God's will, that God has declared it to us in his word, and that the spirit is indicating that this is the right time for us to do this. When all of those things come together, then we begin to symphonize in prayer, and tremendous things happen. An example would be like in the symphony. We have three elements of the symphony. We have the, the instruments, the score, and the conductor. The instruments would be us. All of us are different instruments. And in order for an instrument to function properly, it needs to be clean, it needs to be tuned up, and it needs to be in good shape. And that's our personal life with God. We can't play, pray corporately if our personal life is out of sync with God. You can't come and expect to pray effectively corporately if you're not having a personal prayer life. If you have unconfessed sin, if you're not walking in the light with the Lord, your instrument's going to be old and rusty and you're going to sound like a squeak box instead of a violin. So the first requisite is that each person has to be in right relationship with God in order for the symphony to sound good. The score is the revealed will of God. And God will reveal and, and will highlight needs and directions that he wants us to pray for in prayer. And when we know that it's the will of God for, for him to do a certain thing, then we can with confidence come together and agree with that. And then the conductor is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one that stands up there and goes, da, 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 da. He orchestrates our prayers. And, and, and as, as we saw happen at our prayer meeting on Tuesday night, as we begin to flow and work together in prayer, then there's a, then there's a, the Holy Spirit begins to orchestrate and there's crescendos of, of prayer and agreement that, that are not just intellectual agreement, but that are spiritual harmonizing of our lives together. And that means there needs to be a degree of relationship together. It means that we have to be in right relationship with one another. We have to know each other to some degree. You see the kind of cost that united prayer takes? See, it's not just coming together on Sunday morning and saying, yeah, I'll agree with that, Lord, that's good. It's much deeper than that. And I believe that um, that's why this is a frontier for, for, for our ministries to grow into. It's not intellectual agreement, but it's, it's uh, spiritual harmonizing that's born of the Spirit. And when that begins to happen, we're in that position where the Bible says we're in one accord and, boy, tremendous things begin to happen. And that's, and that's why Satan wars against unity. Boy, Satan will do anything to keep us divided, to keep us squabbling and uh, bickering over inconsequential things, to keep little ideas, little um, idiosyncrasies from us coming together in love because Satan knows that when we come together in love and in harmony, it's going to be the end of his kingdom. And so he works to keep bodies of people divided, petty little differences, you know, little uh, offenses, little things that keep people from coming together in love and saying, listen, I love you, my brother. I love you, my sister. I'm committed to you. I'm not going to let these little ex external things mess our unity up so that it, it ruins our effectiveness. I want Jim Bradford to come. Jim has done an interesting experiment. He has been having his Sunday morning service become a prayer service. And I think he's breaking some new ground that, that I, I think that we need to be following. And I'd like Jim just to share a bit about his um, Sunday morning prayer service. By the way, I encourage all of you to come on Sunday morning. He has a prayer service, and the map tells us how to get there. And I'd like, I, I'm really interested in going myself, but I think there's, some, there's a whole new dimension here in prayer that, that God wants to, uh, wants to teach us about. 
And I think we're going to see some tremendous answers to prayer as, as we are uh, willing to make step, step into this new dimension. Morning, everybody. Our, our Sunday morning prayer times really uh, um, came out of, um, were begun when we became a church, which was almost four years ago now, in August of um, 80. And prior to that, as a student ministry, we were meeting every Friday night to intercede and pray for the campus and the world. And when we became a church, we felt like we wanted to highlight the ministry of prayer, thought we would put it on Sunday mornings. Sunday nights are also um, for a church of our age group, and uh, so many students in it. Sunday nights are also good because of folks who are often out of town on weekends and can come back for a Sunday night gathering. <clears throat> but I, I think fundamental to our whole philosophy of, of uh, prayer is the idea that, like Dick read from the notebook, it is a ministry, and that I really do think is key, that we not see prayer as a functional part of keeping the wheels turning in a ministry. It's more than just um, praying enough so that the sermons preached by the pastor are anointed and that um, you know people can get saved and all of those sorts of things. That's, that's essential, of course. But we need to see that prayer is a ministry as much as other kinds of ministry. It is part of our ministry of evangelism in the way I would see it. Prayer is part of our ministry of evangelism. We win souls on our knees, first of all. And <clears throat> our Sunday morning prayer meeting is led by a team of roughly eight or ten. I believe this next year it will be a full ten people who have a heart to pray themselves. They get together late Friday afternoons. Barb back here is on it. And Craig, you've been on it this last year. Are you on it, Mark? You're joining this year, yeah. They meet Friday afternoons, and they uh, share together what they feel the direction of the Lord would be for the prayer meeting the next Sunday. And then they intercede. They pray for the prayer meeting <laughs> that uh, there will be a sense of liberty and an ability to come through and touch God. Sometimes when you take on certain kinds of things in prayer, especially if there's not support for the people who are coming to pray on that Sunday morning meeting, there can be significant amounts of resistance in the spirit. You, you come and you sit there, and man, the last thing you feel like is, is praying. You know, and, and, and you get down on your knees and you're praying for a nation and the world, and it seems like it seems it's a million miles away. You can't identify at all with it. All of that sort of thing. And a lot of this is just spiritual warfare. He'll throw up everything to make you not feel like praying at all, to get you out of the spirit, to get your mind. People come with their minds and all kinds of things. So it's important to do spiritual warfare over our prayer meetings sometimes so that the larger body of saints, many of whom are just learning to pray themselves, will, will, will have some kind of enablement in the spirit of God to press in. Then generally we follow a format whereby uh, once a month, we will pray for a nation of the world. This Sunday morning, we'll be praying for uh, West Germany because we have a team of 12 people who are coming back next Thursday. They're in the middle, right now, they're in the middle of a two-week mission with John Koschel and University campuses in Germany. And so we'll really be interceding for them and for 
West Germany. We will do, usually we start our prayer meetings. Well, let me go back. I'll finish my thought. Unfortunately, due to the fact that this series was recorded on cassette tape, some content was lost. And those kinds of meetings often we will divide into small groups. Well, we're real, real committed to missions as a church, and we give quite substantially, I think, for as many students as we have, we give, we give thousands and thousands of dollars a year to missions. And what we tend to do is to give larger chunks of money to a few missionaries because we feel our money is going to do them no good if they don't have our prayers. And so just about monthly or at least once every month and a half, uh, we, we pray for the missionaries that we support as well as a growing number of folks who are, are being <coughs> sent out from us in missions. Um, then we also pray about once a month for Christians in Action itself, our own ministry. The Lord spoke to me last fall out of Isaiah 62, where it says, Behold, I have put watchmen on your walls, O Israel, who will not keep silent day or night. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourself and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. It's a compelling kind of idea of the watchmen, the watchers and prayers, watch and pray. Those always went together. The watchmen who, who watched over the city, God's city, and called out to the Lord and took no rest for themselves and gave God no rest until he established and brought to the place of praise everything that he had promised to do. And I felt like we needed in our ministry to have watchmen watching over every area of development in the ministry. And so we developed watchmen teams. And each one of the 10 people um, who are a part of the intercessory leadership team in prayer um, is in charge of one watchman team. And we've divided our ministry into 10 areas. For instance, Barb here uh, oversees uh, the team that prays for the elders and the staff and the interns. And she contacts me every month before our watchman team Sunday comes, which is the first Sunday of the month. A week from tomorrow, we'll be meeting in watchman teams. Uh, and gets prayer requests from me. Um, Craig Kruger, I think you've overseen the team that's involved with campus ministry planting. We have numbers of people from our ministry who are overseeing other campus ministries now, sending out two more this fall. So um, they oversee that. Uh, we have another team overseeing our mar developing married couples ministry, another team overseeing our new nursery <coughs> ministry, and all of these sorts of things. And they watch over the ministry and, and uh, pray for the ministry regularly. And I, I feel that's just something we've done in obedience to the Lord. And um, uh, the, team, the team leaders are not necessarily involved in that area of ministry, but they're responsible for keeping in touch with the prayer needs. Isaiah, was it, is it 62? 62, yeah. Now, um, I, I may just say, too, you're all invited. We'd love to have you come this Sunday morning. Um, sometimes our reputation goes far and wide, and I think gets overstated sometimes. But, uh, you know, we have our days where we have fabulous prayer meetings, you know, and we have our days where it's just, yeah, you know, another prayer meeting, you know, and um, my constant fear is you come and are disappointed, you know. But uh, just if you want to join us, please do come and pray. But I, I think you will find that there is something usually present unless we have kind of a dud meeting, which we have, y'all. Always we have those kinds once in a while. But I think what you'll find is a certain sense of fervency and travail that we, that we really feel is important and that God has spoken to us over and over and over again. And it's related 
than to the whole area of spiritual warfare. There is a principle in the spiritual realms, I think it's parallel to a a natural physical principle. You remember when sin entered into the world, one of the curses put on the woman was that the woman who actually gave birth to new life um, would experience labor and travail, the pains of of labor in, in releasing new life. I think, and that's because of the principle of sin that began to operate in the world. I think because of that principle, in a spiritual parallel, there is, there is that labor and travail that comes when people uh, bear new life in the spiritual realms. There are those times of groaning and agonizing before God, the groanings which cannot be uttered as the Spirit prays through us, a kind of intensity, a kind of fervency to prayer that um, does not negate other kinds of prayers, but in addition to other kinds of prayers, it is also important and essential for especially really doing the frontline work of breaking the strongholds of the enemy. Sometimes just praying through your prayer list just doesn't always do it. There, there, there are certain kinds of affronts of the enemy and, and new territory you have to take that's more than just listing prayer requests to God, but it's somehow letting something of the compassion of Christ we were talking about yesterday grip your spirit. And there's like a, a groaning, a laboring, travailing. Sometimes when um, I, I have prayed in that dimension, it's like words aren't even there, but there's just something, uh, you know, in you. All you know it to do is to groan, and there's a fervency. And James said, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And you exegete that and look at the Greek, and there's no way you can get around it. The word fervent means the energy that's poured into prayer. Even Elijah, remember when he prayed the seven times? Um, he, in fact, he took a posture of an ancient birthing position for a woman who would give birth to put his head between his knees, and he prayed intently, and James said he prayed fervently and effectually. He poured energy into that prayer. There was fervency. There was intenseness. And uh, he had to do it seven times uh, before. You know, I don't know why he only had to pray once, and it stopped raining for three and a half years, and he had to pray fervently and intensely seven times before it started raining again. But whatever was going on in the spiritual realms that we don't always understand and don't always need to know, it, it took a fervency and intensity before finally the little cloud appeared in the sky. And it's that fervency that we, that um, uh, I think is lacking in so much of the church. And I know that it's lacking in Christians in action in full dimension too. I am not here to say we have it. And so I pass judgment on others. I think that in the church in, in, at large, including Christians in action, it, it's something that, that, that is genuinely missing. And uh, again, it's not the only way we pray. You know, we pray many different ways. And sometimes it's just very, we just go through the prayer requests and just name them. We have fairly quiet prayer meetings sometimes. But in general, like especially when we take on a nation like we'll do with West Germany this Sunday morning. We are still going to do that, aren't we? This Sunday morning, I think. You weren't there Friday. Yeah. Um, what we usually do is take often the first half of the meeting and all of us just get down before God. Uh, some people walk around, some lie on the floor, some kneel, some sit. And we would just pray in spirit and begin to do warfare. And and it's like the Lord. It's like, you know how worship, you know, we sing a song and everyone starts singing in the spirit and it rises and then kind of dies off. And then a scripture is read or something and it rises. That's very much like a corporate prayer meeting run for us. And we, we saw that a little that Thursday night here. Um, the rising. Sometimes it wasn't always 
prayers we just agreed with, but everyone began to lift their voice. I felt like we were beginning to border on what it means to really come into a travail, where we all just start letting the Spirit pray through us. And yet there's a divine orchestration. It's amazing, because that'll all rise together and then kind of fall off. And it's not like we're agreeing with one person's prayer, because it's more than just cognitive agreement, like Dick just shared so well. It is an orchestration of, a, of an alignment and unity of our spirits with God as he prays through us. And sometimes we get so stuck in the cognitive that we say, well, I can't agree until I can hear somebody else pray that I can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I think that should be done too. It, it, it's that, but it's more. It, it's, it's that orchestration of the spirit, that, that alignment, that agreement in the spiritual realm. And so God, sometimes we just all call it to God. We're praying in the spirit and, and then... And then sometimes that'll die down and people start, you know, praying, um, doing spiritual warfare, releasing the things that God wants. And then often towards the end of the prayer meeting, we get to those more specific requests. where We just start naming specific requests, praying for individuals in that country or specific situations we know of. Often as the process of travail begins, then there will be prophetic direction to the prayer. And uh, there'll be words given that, uh, that help us to understand what God is saying to us. We prayed for Egypt a few years ago, I remember. This doesn't happen every Sunday by any means, but um, one of the more remarkable experiences we've had was uh, praying for Egypt a couple years ago. And, and the Lord, after a time of real travail, and it seemed, seemed like God was really opening people's eyes to needs in Egypt, um, the Lord spoke to us very, very clearly about Sadat, who was still alive at that time. And it was an urgent word, pray for that man. Um, yeah, it was just a few days later that he was assassinated. And uh, there was such an urgent word from the Lord had come to pray. And uh, I don't know that we fulfilled that word or not. You know, he went ahead and died. I don't know what that means. But um, there was still something, you know. There was still something came very strongly from the heart of God, especially to pray for a spiritual condition. And it turned out to be a very, very specific word. We've received some remarkable specific words. Sometimes, occasionally, we've been able to verify. Um, and... Uh, and, and that's encouraging. But the thing of it is that, that God sometimes can give prophetic direction. Or people are impressed with scriptures during prayer. And they'll read out certain scriptures that give us promises to stand on for that nation. And, uh, and uh, you know, a lot of times we don't get anything real specific for how to pray for a nation or a situation. But we just go and pray as God leads us to pray. And just, just go in and do it. We usually start with oh, close to a half hour of worship. And then we... Then the leadership team gives a little direction for what we're going to pray for that morning, and we go into prayer. And um, it's it's a hard work meeting. It it definitely is not going to church on Sunday morning, and it, it's only attended by, to be honest, probably twenty to twenty five percent of our our church probably on a given Sunday morning will be there. Maybe there are probably fifty between fifty and sixty who generally are a part of of Sunday morning prayer meeting, who generally identify with Sunday morning prayer meeting. But that still leaves a whole lot of people who don't come. And everyone's got their own reasons. Many are, have jobs and some are out of town every weekend and things. But, and, and, and some, for many, I think honestly, it's just a hard meeting to go to. <laughs> it's not an easy meeting. But we, we just feel it's real important to pray. God is able by many or by few. And we found that we'd rather have just people who've really got a heart to pray there. I mean, it's, it's not the thing where we've got something we, everyone ought to be out to this. I, I, I used to feel that way more, and I've really changed this last year on that. Um, God seems to be selecting and recruiting a group of people to, to pray. And so we pray, just part of our ministry to the world as a church. And um, 
we, I think that makes a difference in our other meetings, although we don't always specifically pray for Christians in action every week. I think it does make a difference in our gatherings. Thanks, Tim. I think we need to take this as a, as a model and a goal because I think a lot of prayer, right from a person becoming a new convert, is taught. A lot of prayer, you have to teach people to pray. Because, you know, you take a new convert to that prayer meeting who won't even pray out loud, and he hears all this praying in the spirit and bombastic kind of expressions of praise and, and prayer to God, and he just might be blown away. So what we're talking is, is not for the immature. See, we're talking about mature prayer together. And it's, uh, I know for our fellowship, that, that's a ways off yet. We're, we're still working on getting to people to pray in twos and threes and really having a burden for prayer. So what Jim's talking about is really a ways away for, for our ministry and our church. But I see something of validity to it. And I, I, I wanted Jim to share today because I wanted to challenge you with that. Because down the road, I believe God wants to pull together teams of prayer that can be effective in, in his name. I believe the whole thing of China opening up in these last four and five years has been a response of prayer. And the Muslim world, there is a tremendous burden for the Muslims. It's interesting, you read in literature, missions literature, in all the groups and denominations, there is a call to prayer for the Muslim world. And God is rallying his people. It's amazing what's happening. And, and the walls of Muslim are beginning to shake. An area, a group of people that <clears throat> the church has not penetrated successfully in, <clears throat> in almost 900 years. The church has just not gotten past the walls of, of Islam. But now God is giving some, 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 uh, some cracks in the wall and he's mobilizing people to pray. And I think that we're going to see some breakthroughs in our generation towards reaching the Muslims. And hallelujah, we can be a part of that. Well, in closing, let me look at one other idea under Roman numeral number six. I took a missions class, and we offered a missions class this year at our university from the U.S. Center for World Mission down in California under the direction of Ralph Winner. They have a, an introduction to missions class called the Perspective, Perspectives of the World Christian Movement, and it's an excellent class on missions. We had 70 people take it for, for $130 per person, and it was included a lot of students as well as people from the local town, and it was a tremendous explanation of world mission. It, it touches the biblical view of mission, the historical view of missions. And let me throw this in just as an aside. When, when, when this, um, these teachers came and gave the historical perspective of world missions, it was very interesting, an observation that this one lady had in particular. And she said, throughout history, the groups that have kept their fervency in evangelism are ultimately the, the groups of people that have progressed the gospel, that have made the forward thrust of the gospel. And she said, for, for the most part, it's generally not been the institutional church, but it's been a band of committed people, whether it's been the Moravians or the Franciscan monks or young people's movements, wherever in history you look, there's always been fervent groups of people that have bound themselves together in love and have been fervent in evangelism. And that is what, in, in the hindsight look of history, has propagated the gospel. And so that just uh, really affirms to me that we can't neglect the area of evangelism in our ministries. That we can't get so into discipleship and fellowship and worship that we forget the watching world out there. The student world and then ultimately the, the world that all of us will be living in when, when, when they leave the university campus. And if that witness, I believe, is a part of our ministries and solidly established in our lives, 
we're going to do something that's going to have impact in the generations to come. That really, really excited me. And anyway, so in, in taking this missions class, there was a, there's a great big perspectives book. And one of the chapters that was in that book had a, a very intriguing title, and it was this, Prayer Rebelling Against the Status Quo. And I, I thought, boy, this just, the Lord really underlined something in my heart is that this is what prayer is all about. The uh, scripture that is used for this is the parable in Luke 18, 1 through 8. We don't have time to read through that this morning, but <clears throat> remember, this is the parable of the woman who went to the unjust judge. And she was not getting a fair deal, and she kept pestering this judge saying, hey, give me justice. Give me protection for my opponent. And finally, this judge was just put at his wit's end by this, this woman's persistence, and he gave her legal protection. And, and what Jesus is saying to us here is that we don't need to accept things as they are. We, 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 we cannot get to the place where we just accept sin and the condition of humanity and say, well, that's just the way it is, you know. Paul said that things would get worse the closer it got to the end of the age, and bah, just leave it. So we can't accept the status quo. I need to go to God and say, God, I do not accept what is going on on my campus. And we rebel against the status quo by appealing to God. And what a motivation to pray and say, Lord, this is not the way you intended it. Jesus told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done where? On earth, as it already is being done in heaven. So the, the kingdom prayer is to pray, God, may your will be done. Lord, it's not your will that 90% of the students go out and get drunk on Saturday night and Friday nights, as Harvey mentioned. Lord, that's not your will. That's not what you intended. Lord, we, we're, we're here to ask that you do something about that. I believe God will honor those kinds of prayers that come out of a, a dissatisfaction for, the, for where sin has taken people in, in the world today. John... Um, Jesus said about John the Baptist, and he says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. I need, I, there needs to be a, a sense of violence in our spirit, of not accepting the status quo, of not accepting what is normal, whatever that is. You know, you hear that. Well, that's just normal, you know. But what the heck is normal? Let's talk about what is God's kingdom and what's biblical. I don't care what normal is. I mean, what is normal anyway? You can hardly define that. But let's, let's not settle for what's normal. But let's let there be that, that, that violence of faith that say, I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to accept that. Back in 1977, the homosexual movement was, 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 was growing on our campus. And uh, our student newspaper did a series of of articles that were interviews with homosexuals. And they did this front page thing, you know, and these great big whole page interviews. And I, I read that and I was provoked in my, in my spirit when I read that and I thought, man, they can't do that. I was angry, not angry, you know, at, the, at sin, not angry at the people, but at sin, saying this ought not to be this way. And I prayed about it and I decided that I'm going to speak out against it. I do a lot of editorial writing in our in our school newspaper. I'm, I kind of have a reputation as being a fanatic and a, um, a guy who's always writing letters in the paper, but I find that, that it's, it's a salting effect for the, for the move of Christianity and the move of the gospel on our campus because there's a voice that's speaking always and, and saying, this is wrong, this is the right way, this is God's way. And it gets a, we get a lot of flack in the paper from different people, but there's been a consistent voice over, over the years as I uh, write between 
five to six letters a quarter. Usually every, every week and a half I have a letter in. And so it gets known. You'd be surprised. You know, I'll introduce myself and they'll go, oh yeah, you're Dick Schroeder, huh? Like, you know, expecting something from Star Wars to <laughs> crawl out of a hole, you know. <laughs> Imagine what people think. But what that does, it, it, it's amazing that, how God has used that. Just a particular area God has really spoken to me about, about doing. And so this, I, I, I said, well, Lord, I'm going to write a letter. And what I did is that I took Romans chapter 1 from the Living Bible, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, and I wrote an introduction. I said, I just don't believe it's right that the exponent is promoting an, a lifestyle that's immoral, that is against God. And then I just went into Romans 1 from the Living Bible. The Living Bible puts it really uh, very, well, very contemporarily you know, because of the writing style. And I put the letter, and I really wasn't expecting anything to happen. But I said, well... Lord, at least I'm going to stand up for righteousness and be counted. Well, that was like lighting a can of gasoline. And for six months, we had this eruption of debate. And um, it was a tremendous opportunity to, to declare the word of the Lord to the campus. And it was, it was controversial. Everybody was talking about it. It was amazing. There was, there was even some threats made against me personally. And it was, it was, it was, in, it was just something that was in God's time. And, and all through that, we got to, to speak a lot, and we got to uh, address the campus. And it, and it turned out that the, uh, the homosexuals wanted to have a student group, and they wanted to be recognized. And we, we uh, pursued it all the way to our student senate, our political organization on the campus of the students, and the senate voted 19 to 1 against them becoming a student group on the basis that it was immoral. So it was a victory, and a <laughs> tremendous thing happened. And uh, and, and see, part of it goes out of this thing that I'm not going to accept that. You know, I am not going to accept. This is a lie. It is not true. And I am not going to stand idly by and just let the enemy come in and build some more walls and bind more people up on our campus. You know, so that, it's, that, it's that willingness to stand up and say, Lord, I'm going to be countered for righteousness sake. And that needs to be our attitude in prayer. Don't pers- don't. Don't settle for the status quo, but have that divine dissatisfaction that says, Lord, we'll not give you any rest until you make your kingdom in the earth. The scripture that Jim quoted. See, we need that divine dissatisfaction that says, Lord, I'm going to hang in here in prayer until you give us your kingdom and your will. Let me conclude by saying this. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, this is what Samuel said. He said, moreover, as for me, Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Samuel said that it would be a sin for me not to pray for you. And I believe, you guys, as a leader, it's a sin not to pray for your people. It's more than just a, um, a forfeiting of responsibility, but it is a sin in the eyes of God for us not to pray for the people whom we're leading. Jesus Lived on the earth for 33 years. He had a three-year active ministry and has spent nearly 2,000 years in intercessory prayer. Jesus intercedes for us constantly before the throne of the Father. And if we're going to become like Jesus, then intercessory prayer needs to become a part of our life. I want to close by reading a bit of a diary from a man named Bishop Francis Asbury, the first Methodist bishop ordained in America. To be sure, he is renowned for his, his uh, great labors in presenting the message of Christ to the lost and his administrative oversight of the church. But underlying all of it was a fervent, though unassuming, practice of prayer. 
Here, I am persuaded, was the real secret of his strength as well as the inspiration of the fellowship raised up about him. One cannot read his journal without being impressed by the reoccurring, reoccurring references to prayer. The following excerpts are typical. Tuesday, the 9th of September, 1777. My mind was so intensely bent on seeking more, out, more of God that I devoted three hours to the exercise of private prayer and found myself much drawn out by the spirit of grace in holy wrestling and communion with God. I have endeavored to banish all anxiety from my mind and devote much of my time to prayer and reap the gracious benefit thereof in my own soul. Monday, October 13th. Commotion and trouble surround me without, but the sense of God filled my soul within. We seem to be in a strait, but my soul trusts in the Lord. Monday, the 7th of August, 1780. I arose with a comfortable sense of the divine presence in my heart. We prayed alone in the woods. I pled I pled in private, great labors are before me, the Lord keeps me. Thursday, the 27th of April, 1788. I went alone into the woods and found my soul profitably solitary in sweet meditation and prayer. Sunday, the 30th of April, 1788. I found it good to be alone by the solitary stream in silent woods to study the welfare of Zion and to pray for her prosperity. Sunday, May 22nd. Uh, 1792, my mind and my body feel dull and heavy, but my soul drinks deeper into, into, into God. We rode about 160 miles from Rich Valley to the Greenbrier, to the Greenbrier Conference. And that's on a horse. Can you imagine that? 160 miles on a horse. Wednesday, January 1812, I was anxious to pass the first day of this new year in undisturbed prayer. Such was the spirit by which Asbury lived and died. He moved forward on his knees. Prayer was woven into the fabric of his ministry. True, he never graduated from college or seminary, nor even received an honorary degree, but he attained an infinitely higher credential of the Christian ministry. He learned to pray. Let us hope that this same sense of prayer will mark the steps of those leaders who follow in his train. And may God give us the grace to follow in that train together. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.